Well, hello and welcome to the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast powered by Alex on Autos. I'm Tim Masso here with the car czar, Alex Dykes. Alex, Cadillac, a recent drive for you. You've driven the Lyric. We're going to talk about the Celestic. Tell me about Cadillac's new EV. Sure. Uh, and before I dive in, I should say, you know, I apologize. I have some allergy issues right now and, uh, and a sinus infection. So if I sound a little funny, then, uh, you know, catch us next episode. But Cadillac has said that their entire future future is electric. In fact, General Motors has said their future is electric. And aside from Mary bragging all the time that somehow or another GM is currently the leader in EVs, they're certainly planning on being the leader in EVs. And the start of that is the new Lyric, followed by the Celestic coming shortly thereafter. The Lyric is approximately... I suppose you would say BMW X5 sized, although it looks more like a wagon than a traditional SUV or crossover. And it is the the leader in the Cadillac lineup going towards electrification. It's the first one. It's got a big battery. It also is going to be the model that's going to show us all the new gadgets and gizmos and styling that we expect in Cadillac models coming up, like really cool, slim LED headlights that are vertically oriented rather than horizontal, all new buttons, uh, knobs, pulls, all the switch gear inside the cabin is all unique to the Cadillac lineup. And they're promising no GM car will ever get these new buttons other than a new Cadillac. So, of course, Tesla right now, Mary wants to be the leader in EVs, but right now that is Tesla and Elon. Uh, how does the Lyric compare to, say, the Model Y and the Model X? Is it a tweener? How does it measure up? Interesting point there. I had expected it to be more Model Y, but it is size-wise somewhere between Y and X in the Tesla lineup, which in the Tesla lineup means somewhere between $68,000 and, oh my God, way too expensive because the Model X is about $120,000 today. So I had honestly thought the Lyric would be closer to those price tags. If you were lucky enough to get your hands on a 2023 pre-order, it will start under $60,000 and top out right around $65,000. So quite a bit less expensive than the absolute base version of the Tesla Model Y. Really good place for Cadillac to be in and very, very surprising because everything else in the Cadillac lineup, I think is oddly expensive. XT4, XT5, XT6 all seem about four to $5,000 too expensive. And Lyric feels like it's $15,000 too cheap. Yeah, I kind of noticed that too. It seems almost across the board, Cadillac SUVs seem really expensive for what they are. And the Lyric, especially considering there's no tax credit anymore for General Motors, seemed remarkably uh, reasonable. Even the 2023s seemed pretty reasonable all things considered now you did try the car with uh two-wheel drive there's going to be a premium for all-wheel drive does that change the frame much or is it still coming in below expectations still well below expectations i was only able to drive the rear wheel drive model the all-wheel drive model is going to be late availability we were driving very early pre-production prototypes mind you so there was definitely a lot that was not quite right about the lyrics we were driving but the all-wheel drive mall's coming a little later. It's going to be much more powerful, obviously. That's why it's $4,000 extra. Now, I think we've all sort of moved past that place where we believe every electric car needs to accelerate exactly like a Tesla. There are other dimensions of quality in the automotive experience. 
Um, if you take performance, just straight line performance out of the equation, when you're in the vehicle, does it feel class competitive? Because GM is going to be creating exclusive Cadillac mm -hmm. interior things. And I think you have more to say about that. Yeah, I think that's where the lyric really shines is if you are trying to look at an EV in this segment as a performance machine, if you want the sharpest handling, the best stopping distance, the best acceleration, Lyric is absolutely not the EV for you. It is notably slower than average, I would say, as far as modern EVs in this grouping go. We weren't able to drive the all-wheel drive model, obviously. We're only driving the rear-wheel drive version. But the big problem with acceleration and braking scores is that it's heavy. It's about 1,000 to 1,400 pounds more than some of the other competitors in what is a very broad segment, something that ranges all the way from Genesis GV60, which is trying to be a subcompact luxury crossover, on up to Audi e-tron, which is about the same size. So it's a very broad range of competitors. In that group, it does feel a little bit slow, but it has one of the best rides out there. The cabin is incredibly quiet. I wasn't able to do any cabin noise testing there. I would not be surprised, however, if it was the quietest vehicle we've ever tested. It is absolutely serene on the road. And I think that Cadillac's refocus on those traditional luxury values of a quiet, comfortable ride, decent handling, a solid feel to the steering, etc. I think that was a good choice for them. And that's probably the best way to think of it is the steering feel and the ride quality feels like a classic rear-wheel drive Cadillac in some ways. Not floaty-boaty, but sort of like the last-generation CTS. Yeah, I think that's that's a good way to look at it. And I think it's also interesting that you mentioned the vehicles maybe a little bit more like a tall wagon. It feels like an electric successor to the first-generation Cadillac SRX, and that's kind of how I'm seeing yeah. it. That's exactly what I said when I drove it. <laughs> and it truly is. It uh, It is quite long. And as a result, some of the numbers are deceiving, I would say. If you're a, a comparison shopper that's focusing on specs, I drove the Lyric and then I immediately came back into a Genesis GV60. And on paper, the Lyric looks strangely uncompetitive. It is enormous compared to the GV60 on the outside, but it has about the same kind of legroom numbers and relatively similar cargo room numbers to the GV60. But in person, that's not really telling the whole tale. The way that legroom figures are measured is a little bit unusual because it it counts the seating position effectively in mind. If you're in a very reclined vehicle, it can appear that you have the same legroom figures as a very compact vehicle with an upright seating position. And that's mainly what's going on here. The, the seating position in the Lyric is somewhere between a Cadillac sedan and a Cadillac SUV. So it's somewhere between a CT5 or CT6 and an Escalade in terms of that seating position. And that results in the vehicle being longer, feeling more relaxed. But if you're in the back seat, it certainly feels like a large, spacious vehicle, and it definitely has a wider third, a second row than we find in GV60 or some of those other vehicles. So now, what would you compare it to? Because I think the, the initial gut instinct is to always compare every EV to Tesla, but you mentioned the Audi e-tron, and I think that was an mm -hmm. interesting comparison because Audi was pretty explicit about that being a very livable, serene, luxury-oriented EV experience. And it sounds like you know, obviously there will be V models to come down the line, but this particular Cadillac is more of the Audi state of mm -hmm. mind with respect to EV performance. 
Yeah, I would say that the more appropriate competitors for the Lyric would be the e-tron, the upcoming Mercedes-Benz uh, EQE SUV, which we all know is coming, haven't been announced yet, and the BMW iX, which is kind of sort of the electrified BMW X5. Those are probably the closest and most direct competitors in terms of their size, their presence, the way they drive, etc. The Model Y is trying to be an electric Model 3 with a, you know, a bigger back, I guess you'd say. It really does look like an overinflated Model 3, and it tries to drive more like a BMW X3, whereas the Lyric, it's trying to go for a more grown-up feel is probably the best way to say it. It is not going to be as sharp driving or as sharp handling as those smaller category electric vehicles due to its curb weight, the general dimensions, etc., but it is significantly more livable. The Model Y suspension, honestly, is is quite harsh. Yeah, and it's it's funny you mentioned that the Model Three is it looks like, or the Model Y looks like an inflated version of the Three, because I've often thought that the Model Y looks like someone made a pool toy version of a Model Three, and that's where you got <laughs> the Model Y. <laughs> I mean, it's not that's not a wrong thing to say. You know, the Model X is an inflated S, the Model Y is an inflated Three. It's it saves money and it's quite logical. Aerodynamics are very important for an EV, which is why we have that very rounded shape in the Tesla and why we have this very station wagon come crossover thing in the Lyric. If someone had said that this was a platform mate to a Volvo XC90 cross country, I would absolutely believe it because it has that kind of look to it. If someone had told me that, I would have said, oh yeah, I can see it. So now I don't know down the line whether we're going to look at the, the Lyric as the beginning of Cadillac's commitment to EVs or if maybe the bigger change is going to be Cadillac's commitment to an entirely different uh, course of design. Art and science, it seems, has been with us for, oh, geez, 22, 23 years since the 2000 DeVille. And this really feels like the first turn of the page to a new book of design. And the Celestic is going to be at the apex of that campaign. Is $300,000 too much for a Cadillac. I am curious to see. I think that if this is what Cadillac is doing for $60,000 and they put the same level of effort into $300,000, then the world is their oyster. They would they definitely can do it. And maybe that's the best thing to say is that this is the Cadillac I always knew General Motors could build, but honestly I never thought they would because GM has just never had that much drive somehow before. General Motors will spend millions and millions and millions of dollars refining engines for Cadillac and refining, you know, unique drivetrains, unique suspension systems, unique chassis for Cadillac models. But for some odd reason, they've never put that much money into the interior. And this time it appears that we have that budget on the inside. And perhaps maybe it's because it's not as unique as far as its underpinnings as Cadillacs have been in the past. It's a really interesting question because Cadillac hasn't been in this market since at least the 1960 Eldorado Brome, which was bodied by Panin Farina. Really, the car that comes to mind, there are two. When I think of a $300,000 Celestic, there is the 1957-58 Eldorado Brome, which cost about 
$13,100 back then, back when a house in Levittown cost $5,700. <laughs> and then the 19 yeah i know well, my grandma bought one of those houses but um... yeah and that that's probably the important thing for for viewers and listeners to remember is that that cadillac in its origin story and for many many decades really was a rolls-royce bentley kind of company and it's only recently that they kind of really closed the gap to become buick yeah that's the thing like the eldorado brome had it all I mean, it had memory power seats in 1957. It wasn't even really in the catalog. There was one page in the catalog. The car was as full custom as you could get in Detroit. And I mean, it, it cost thousands of dollars more than a Rolls Royce in its day. The other car that comes to mind is the 1930 V16, which you know cost $6,000 in 1930. That's a fabulous amount of money today with inflation. Um, but this is really the first time we've seen Cadillac even pretend to be competitive in this space. And notably, they're doing it with a vehicle that is intrinsically worth this much rather than, say, you know, doing like some sort of conversion on an Escalade and just adding $200,000 in accessories and custom work. Right. And it'll be interesting to see exactly how much is shared with other vehicles. When General Motors is talking about Ultium family vehicles, it is... It is an interesting twist on General Motors' platform sharing of the past. In theory, the Hummer EV, the Hummer SUV, the Chevy Silverado truck, and this Lyric and the Celestic are all going to be related. But exactly how these vehicles interrelate with one another is most unusual for General Motors. The battery modules are common with the Hummer truck in the Lyric. But other than that, very little else is. The suspension's different, obviously. Um, the car's electronics and infotainment systems, those are very similar, but with different screens and different themes, etc. So if they can apply that same sort of uh, design philosophy to their newer vehicles, then they're really in for something big. Yeah, I think this is going to be interesting because, first of all, they're expressly declaring that this is going to be a hand-built car. And the Warren Michigan Technical Center, which emphatically is not a factory, is being tooled up to make this car. And they've never made anything at the tech center. Apparently, the investment is $81 million, which I guess sounds like a lot at face value, but it's not a lot from a production engineering standpoint. True. Factories typically cost hundreds of millions or even a billion dollars to set up. So I suspect this really is going to be as handmade as they're saying. And if the goal is to make 300, 400 a year, like they did with the Eldorado Brome, that sounds about what they're prepping to make. And I would not be surprised if they pull heavily from the GM Hummer, you know, in terms of electrical architecture, but most of the underlying pan and frame is unique and, and possibly hand assembled. Yeah, the amount of investment appears to be substantially similar to Acura with their performance center where they did NSX. Now they're making a few TLXs here and there. So it, it seems logical for, for what their plan was. It'll be impressive to see whether there's anything that fills the gap because between the $150,000 Escalade V and $300,000 Celestics, there is a huge gap. I don't think having a halo car that's so far beyond the norm of your production that nothing comes close is necessarily as helpful as having halo cars that maybe sit just above somewhat more accessible products. So I'm interested to see what Cadillac prices between 150 and 300 to make the most of this newfound credibility they have in the luxury segment. I'm going to go ahead and guess nothing. Really? I don't I don't expect Cadillac to really have anything to close that gap. 
We have not, of course, seen the entire portfolio of electric vehicles coming from Cadillac, but nothing that we've seen so far seems to point in that direction. One would assume that at some point there's going to be some sort of electric sedan-y thing, but probably a whole lot of electric crossovers and definitely an electric Escalade at some point. And electric Escalade might close that gap a little bit, but it's not going to be right in the middle. It's not going to be a $200,000 starting point. You know, that, that's fair. I mean, even back in the day, the Eldorado Brome cost twice as much as an Eldorado. So that is saying something. Now, in terms of things that are perhaps similar and yet different, more EVs, you've got the Rivian R1T. What have you discussed and discovered so far? Yeah, so it literally arrived this morning. I was a little unsure whether it was going to show up or not. We had everything scheduled for a number of weeks, and then they called me yesterday and said, we discovered that there's a dent in the car oh. on delivery. So they did their delivery inspection. It's in sort of an unusual spot. It's inside the door jam, so it's not visible on the outside. I don't think it's going to uh, affect its resale value, to be perfectly honest, even if it was not repaired, although they have pledged to fix it. So I said, well, I really want it now. Can't you just arrange, figure out how you're going to fix it, arrange to have it fixed, make that happen some other time. Yeah, so I can get my hands on my little toy now. And they made it happen. It showed up. Their purchase process was honestly very simple, very Tesla-like. Everything's done online. You sign everything. And then they just drop off the car. Uh, the guy will spend as long as you want showing you the car, or you can just have him split. So it's almost like it's the way Tesla was eight years ago. They actually explain the car to you. They take time. They orient you. It's not like you show up. They give you the car. You're done. They wipe their hands. True. Yeah. I mean, it, it was a very pleasant experience. Actually, it was very similar to my experience buying the Tesla Model 3 that we had as a, as a long-term vehicle for a while there. Um, the the truck is wicked fast. That's probably the best thing that everybody needs to know is, yes, it definitely is 3.3 seconds 0 to 60. Actually, we got 3.2 uh, seconds 0 to 60 just recently here. Um, it is a four-motor off-roady mid-sized truck. So it's not quite the same construct as Lightning. Although very clearly, everybody that buys one of these is going to cross shop it with the other, even though they're not quite the same sort of truck. It's not as mid-sized as Tacoma, though. How does it feel structurally? Gesundheit. Pardon me here. <coughs> okay. <laughs> How does it feel structurally now that you've had the F-150 Lightning and you've had the Rivian? I mean, just... On the road, can you feel that one is body on frame and one is unibody? Or does the weight of the Rivian mask the difference? Well, the Rivian is an interesting thing because it's not quite unibody and it's not quite body on frame. If there ever was a middle ground, and I am really offended by the notion of a middle ground, this is it. Because if you wanted to be technical, it is body on frame, except that the body is all one piece rather than a regular pickup truck where there are actually two bodies on top of your frame. There's the bed, there's the passenger compartment, they're bolted to the frame. In the Rivian, it's an actual skateboard. So the the front suspension, the rear suspension, those are part of the frame, frame-ish. I guess it's sort of two unibodies, you might say, probably to be honest, two unibodies sort of conjoined there. In the Rivian, it feels very, very solid and it makes sense for its off-roading mission. So that's probably the other thing that people should know is that the F-150 is regular F-150 electrified. So 
as much off-road capability or on-road capability as is baked into a regular F-150 is in the Lightning with extra weight. The Rivian really feels like a pickup truck Jeep Grand Cherokee, I guess is probably the best way to describe it. If Jeep were ever going to do a Grand Comanche and electrify it, that's what the Rivian would be. So we've got the four electric motors, one at each wheel, absolutely enormous amounts of power, over 830 horsepower in the Rivian, 0 to 60, 3.2 seconds. You can send power wherever you want because there are four electric motors. It has an air suspension with over 11 inches of ground clearance, huge water fording ratings, etc., tow hooks, strong towing ability, all that sort of stuff, really tight turning radius, and a much shorter uh, dimension than, than the Lightning. But then it's not quite Tacoma-sized either. It's only 0.9 inches narrower than a Lightning. And the big difference really between the Lightning and the Rivian is the bed length. It's about one foot shorter in the Rivian, and then the hood is about the same size. So the passenger compartment is roughly similar. It's a little bit narrower, a little bit differently arranged, but not too far off. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you mention how many independent self-supporting structures there are in the frame of the Rivian. Because I know a lot of folks probably have two misconceptions. One is that it's going to be lighter because they think it's a unibody truck. Mm -hmm. The second is that it's some sort of electric Honda Ridgeline, which it definitely isn't. <laughs> right. Both. Yeah, neither one of those is true. Um, the Lightning is shockingly light, I would say. The key to its lightness, though is its aluminum body. And even with the regular F-150, Ford went hard, 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 hard on aluminum. So the bed's aluminum, the doors are aluminum, the body's aluminum, all that, etc. In the Rivian, most of it is steel. So it has a glass roof, it has a steel, or sorry, an aluminum hood, and the composite bed cover, the tonneau cover. But the vast majority of the Rivian is, is steel, which is much less expensive to manufacture, important for a company like Rivian that needs to make money at some point. And then there is the sort of frame-like structure underneath, and then a lot of additional weight involved in the four electric motors. That's much heavier than two electric motors. Also, the battery pack seems to be a bit more structural in the Rivian, likely because of the off-roading mission. Then there is that off-roading mission itself. So for the kind of torsional rigidity that you need in off-camber situations, the Rivian appears to be much more solid for that than the F-150 Lightning. And then finally, some of the additional features like the adaptive air suspension, the onboard uh, compressor in the back, all that sort of stuff, that all adds weight. Yeah, and I think that it, it's probably fair to call the Rivian more of a lifestyle truck than the F-150, especially- Exactly. There will be work truck versions of the F-150. I'm not sure there's ever going to be a Rivian that has to haul anything to earn its keep. The work truck version would be owned by Amazon for delivery. There you go. There's your Rivian working up right there. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about um, cars that we can't buy. I don't mean the Cadillac from the future. I don't <laughs> mean the Lyric from the present. I mean cars from overseas. Alex, Forbidden Fruit, start us off. What would you love to see stateside? Yeah, Forbidden Fruit. I I was curious about this uh, because I was wondering what started your thought process on this. You emailed me and yeah. I had that, that thought already because I was just in Iceland driving a Suzuki Vitara manual transmission hybrid. And I thought, this is the kind of bonkers that I want in America. And so I wanted to do this segment right when you wanted to do it. Um, 
So first up, yes, definitely bring me a Suzuki Vitara manual transmission hybrid to America because it is all kinds of epically wrong. And uh, also a bunch of French cars. Yeah, tell us a little bit about those because there's a ton of Peugeots on your list and I did not see this coming. I thought you were, <laughs> were going to be solid K car and we'd have like... I, uh, I love me some French cars because around the world, regardless of where I have driven... Uh, I've driven Chinese market cars. I've driven Japanese market cars and Korean cars that don't make their way to the U.S. I've driven tons of European cars. And consistently, without doubt, the brand new car that I hop into that was made the year that I'm driving the car, you hop into it and you cannot figure out how on earth to do anything. Or you're a thousand miles into your journey, seven days in, and you're still discovering new and awkward buttons and switches. They're all French. And that's what I love about Peugeot and Citroën, etc., is they will do wacky things on the interiors that nobody else will do. And I kind of think that's refreshing. There, there's so much sameness in the automotive industry now that nothing feels as unique and as special as maybe it once did. And only the French are wacky enough to say, you know, let's put the turn signals as a toggle switch on the dashboard for no particular reason instead of a turnstock. Or how about random audio controls that are on the steering column as a button bank, but not on the wheel that moves with you and in a place where you can't see them. So you just have to know that they're there. Yeah, it's like in the Citroen SM or any, any old Citroen. It's like, what do you mean the brake pedal doesn't move? If it's always like this? Why is uh -huh. it like a mushroom? You know, but, and when uh, you and when you look at the new Peugeots, I I actually like their design language. I initially thought I haven't actually seen them. This is how insular I am to the North American market. The last time I left the country was before COVID, and uh, that was before Peugeot really started exploding their lineup with this brand new face that they have. And hopefully, Brian's going to put a picture on the screen. If you're all listening to the podcast, just Google some Peugeots: the five thousand eight, the three thousand eight, and the five hundred eight. Peugeot's new front-end design is um, its polarizing. Let's just say that. It is big, it's brash, it's bold. And I almost crashed turning my head the first time I saw one on the road going, oh my God, what has Peugeot wrought? And the more that I saw it, the more I kind of liked it. But Peugeot's interiors are also different. They don't stick screens and things in the same places that anybody else does. There's lots of imitation wood here and there thrown about higgledy-piggledy at funky angles. I kind of like it. Yeah, I'll, I'll just say that you're absolutely right about the grill uh, to describe. For those of you who aren't like following along with the web browser open, imagine a combination of like an Acura grill, an American full-size pickup, and a chic Quattro shaver, and you've pretty much got the idea. Um, yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of electric razor going on there. Now, I would also say that I am totally into a lot of weirdo European cars, and some of them are French, like the, the Citroën C6, which was interesting because it's about five series size mm -hmm. like so I think five series you got the idea this was the last of the line that officially started in the 50s with the ds um it was weird hyper modern on the outside hyper modern on the inside it had that incredible hydro pneumatic suspension interlinked that gave you you know just the floating on a cloud ride where you could just rail a speed bump at 55 miles an hour and not feel it <laughs> a really special car but it's not in production anymore so I'm going to qualify my longing with a car that just went out of production as of March of this year, the Honda S660. If you love the Honda Beat, the S660 <laughs> is that, but more modern. 
on a on a realistic tangent here, yeah. I honestly think now that Peugeot is part of Stellantis, which for those that don't know corporate brand names is Chrysler in America. Now that everybody's all together, one happy little nut, uh, I really believe that there is a future for the Peugeot uh, 3008. I think that if you called it a Chrysler, that would work somehow. It is a funky styled, but perfectly practical and rational vehicle sized somewhere between the original Kia Sportage, or I should say the last generation Kia Sportage and the current generation RAV4. So it's in the hottest segment in America. You can get 131 horsepower all the way on up to 300 horsepower in your Peugeot. You have lots of funky screens, 10 inch heads up display. There are two different plug-in hybrids available. There's a front wheel drive one or the 300 horsepower all wheel drive one. And supposedly electric range is right around 30 miles or so of electric range and a 358 pound feet of torque. Yeah, I think that's a good call because these days they say the Chrysler brand is going to be the mobility brand of Stellantis, whatever that means. It evokes soulless like people pods. <laughs> but this is an MPV. This yeah. 2008, like this would actually fit the scheme. It would give Chrysler a second competitive product alongside the Pacifica. Yeah, they still make the 300, but the less said, the better. Um, this would be a cool car. This would be uh, an, an MPV that, that's somewhere between like a minivan and an SUV and very difficult to categorize. And it's it's funky enough on the inside that I think it would be epic. And uh, Peugeot really wants you to think of it as an SUV now, not an MPV. The 3008 used to cross lines because it was honestly it was so peculiar before this is the 3008 is kind of funky but let's be honest the old 3008s were just weird they were weird 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 this one seems like it would work internationally i actually think they should play up the weirdness if they're going to launch something exactly yeah <laughs> like french riviera color tones on like seat fabric crazy stuff my next thing really is literally anything that Skoda could bring us. Uh, if for those that don't know, Skoda is a Czech brand. So the Czech Republic, um, when they became a democratic country in the 1990s, they decided to privatize the national car company, Skoda, and Volkswagen bought 30%. As of 2000, Volkswagen owns 100%. And really everything is just a Czech Republic version of a German car but with a tiny bit more flair and a little bit of self-deprecation in their advertising. Yeah, if you've been following pro cycling any point in the last 20 years, you've seen these things. If you ever wondered what a Czech version of an Audi would look like, this is a very good approximation of that. Mm -hmm. They're nice cars, they're fun cars. I'm not necessarily sure they serve a purpose that Audi and Volkswagen don't already, but the availability of wagons changes everything and they definitely have that. Well, since everything that Skoda sells is really just a Volkswagen with a different logo on it, this could be the solution to Volkswagen's problems in North America. Maybe we just stop being Volkswagen and we're now the the plucky startup brand from the Czech Republic. Well, well there you go. This is not a Toyota. It's a Lexus. Exactly. I like that idea. Okay. I'm going to add something that may already be available um, with tenuous legality in the United States, and that is the Suzuki Jimny. If ever there were a time for a 2,500 pound micro car sized live axle, low range locking body on frame SUV, this is that time. Once upon a time, we had this as the Suzuki mm -hmm. Samurai, but it's still made. And as of 2020, it's sold in Mexico, which is how a couple of them, 
with dubious legality, have found their way into the U.S. Yes, and I deliberately reserved a Jimny when I went to Iceland. That was what I wanted. <laughs> and I got there and I got upgraded to a Vitara and I was so upset. And they said, sorry, we already gave away your Jimny. And I'm just like, how, how is this an upgrade? <laughs> but interesting twist, the Vitara was actually meant to be the spiritual successor to the original Suzuki Samurai, even though the Jimny exists somehow in Suzuki mindset, the Grand Vitara and then Vitara was actually the lineage tracing back to there and Jimny, I don't know, it's very odd, but I, I dig the Jimny and I would totally get one. They're incredibly cheap. And they're incredibly small. Like you guys, if you have Google it, keep us streaming, but Google this. This is a K car sized hardcore four by four. It's the real deal. Live axles, ladder mm -hmm. frame, locking low range, all of that stuff. But again, I cannot overemphasize it makes a two door Wrangler look like a Unimog. It is small. Yes. And if you want to somersault yourself right down a hill, that is the Suzuki for you. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, I'm sorry to say this, but this is the vehicle. If you remember the Consumer Reports lawsuit that went for like eight years in the 80s yes. and 90s. I mean, do you really need Consumers Union to tell you that a tall, narrow mini car might tip over? Well, it still does. Mind blowing. Yes. Uh, don't don't buy it for safety. Do not make any quick motions with the steering wheel. But they look they look amazing. I saw so many of them on the road, and every time I saw one, I was jealous. And they moving on to uh, something else Japanese, though. Let's talk about Mitsuoka. Was that on your list? Mitsuoka was not on my list, but I'm very familiar with them. If you ever wanted to convert, say, a Rav Four into a K5 Blazer, this is your bag, guys. Yeah, and this is this is what I find interesting. So. Mitsuoka, for those that don't know, they're not a Japanese car company in the way we would think of them, although they are registered as one in Japan. What Mitsuoka does is they buy bodies in white from the major brands in Japan, and it could be usually a Nissan, a Toyota, sometimes a Mazda, etc. And then they reskin it as something totally bonkers. But because they're all reskins and they're not designing engines or transmissions or changing any major points on the vehicle, these could be sold as kits to North America if they really wanted to. So there's this, the Mitsuoka Buddy. Let's go over their lineup. There's the Mitsuoka okay. Buddy, which is a Toyota RAV4 hybrid that has been restyled into a Chevy K5 Blazer. It is all kinds of wrong and all kinds of right. And I want to see them here. So many people do weird conversions anyway. You might as well have one from the factory. Then we have the Vute which is the weirdest name ever. This is a classic Jaguar Mark II styled, wait for it, Nissan Micra. So it is incredibly small. Um, and the interior, incredibly cheap. Then we have the, uh, I'm not sure how we pronounce this one, Gavla or Gale, or I'm not sure how that pronounced, Glue maybe. But it is, it is the most awkward Rolls-Royce imitation ever based on a Nissan Altima. That's epic. Then they have the Himiko, also known as the Mitsuoka Roadster in UK, because this is sold in the United Kingdom. It's the only Mitsuoka you can buy there. And if you can buy one there, you should just run out and do it. This is based on a current generation Mazda Miata, and it looks like a classic British Roadster. It's like Jaguar meets Morgan, only with a warranty and a Japanese engine and transmission. Then we have the Rockstar, the best name ever for a Japanese car. This is the same deal. It's a current generation Mazda Miata, only styled like a classic Corvette. And 
it the result looks pretty good. If you haven't seen it, you should Google that one for sure. The proportions somehow work on it, even though it, nothing really should somehow. And then the last one is the Ryugi. This is this is the most wrong of them all. It is Jag meets Rolls Royce with extraordinarily awkward proportions. Like nothing, nothing looks right on this car. The grill, the headlights, the hood, nothing looks right. But it definitely looks like Jaguar meets Rolls Royce meets Toyota Corolla because it's a Japanese market Corolla with all that on it. Oh, it, it, it gets better. Have we have we broached the Oroki yet, or is that is that coming? That one's that one's no longer on sale. I, I current went through their current product lineup. <laughs> and if you're wondering what that looks like, it looks like someone combined a noble M12 with a grilled cheese sandwich and served it cold. <laughs> That's uh it's probably not far off. I I really think that there would be an interesting market for the kit components. This is this is an unexplored world in America currently. There used to be a day or a, a time in America where people customized their cars more frequently. You look at the 1950s, 1960s, you know, uh, more aggressive customization than we find now definitely occurred. Now, you know, it, it's customized if you pinstripe it, you put a stupid wood applique on your Grand Wagoneer and that's earth-shattering to some people. People used to do some crazy body modifications, and this could be the solution to that with Japanese reliability. You're not wrong. There was a time when full custom was more common, but that was back when 32 Fords were easy to buy cheap and the Volkswagen Beetle existed. I mean, <laughs> the, half of all the kit cars ever made come from like one or the other lineage. Um, yeah, you're, you're not wrong. I, I like those selections. One thing I would love to see here, and it's not going to happen, but if you ever wondered what a French, like 80% scale Porsche 718 would look like, <laughs> the Alpine A110, guys, don't knock it till you try it, but it's a little teensy thing with almost 300 horsepower in A110 spec. It's built in the old Dieppe plant. It is the modern resurrection of the original Alpines, um, but it's a lot faster. And again, I would just say, it is like an 80% scale Cayman. That's the best way to describe it. Mm -hmm. And then that was pretty much where my list ended because the more I thought about some of the other crazier options that were out there, the more I thought, yeah, they wouldn't, they're not, they're not weird enough and they wouldn't fit. I don't, does Toyota still make the mega cruiser? I should have checked that I one. I don't know. I should have checked that either. I don't believe so. Um, and Toyota's lineup in Japan's getting more harmonious with the North American and European line. The Crown is going to be universal. It's going to be a front-wheel drive Avalon replacement, so a little bit less unique there. Okay, that's fair. And by the way, guys, if you're wondering, the short answer is basically uh, Toyota made a Hummer. Now you know. Okay. Mm -hmm. So jumping on, I think um, we've got some questions about the nature of the car biz, starting with dealerships. Why do we have them? Why are they so politically powerful? Why are they at war with Tesla and the like? Ah, uh, yes. The eternal dealer question. I got a lot of questions about this, especially recently uh, due to our 
I guess, drama, you might say, around the F-150 Lightning pricing. The F-150 Lightning got shipped by Ford. You sign on to their dealer page on the, their website, and it will theoretically tell you if there's a dealer markup that the dealer is going to add and how much that dealer markup is. And mine went from zero dealer markup to $10,000 overnight. I thought, wow, that's really weird. Um, I don't normally talk to manufacturers when we buy a car. So at this point, Ford did not know. None of the PR people knew that I had ordered a Lightning. We kept it really quiet, as we usually do. But I decided to break my rule here because there's just no way I'm going to pay $10,000 worth of markup like so many people out there are experiencing. So I decided to try and see if I could do anything about it. This dealer is one that has pledged not to have dealer markups. So I have to be really upfront on that one is the dealer has publicly pledged that on their pages. So it does appear to be an error. That's what Ford said in the end was that it was an error in the system. And even now it hasn't updated. And there's just some glitch with their website where that that markup is still there, even though they claim it's not going to be a problem. So that said, this got the conversation started about dealers. And I think what a lot of folks in America don't really understand is that dealers are not owned by the car companies and they're not just independent resellers either. They're this weird middle ground of the franchise. So a McDonald's and a Ford dealer are actually more the same thing than your local shop that's selling Macintoshes without the Apple logo on the store. There are there are dealers of power equipment that can sell other power equipment. So if say if you go to a Honda, you know, Honda's power sports dealer, they're gonna sell you, you know, Honda side by side, a Polaris side by side, or an RV or a motorcycle or whatever. But in the car world, brands are just one thing. So the same person may own multiple different franchise dealer brands, but when you walk into that Ford dealer, it's going to be all Ford all the time, but with no real connection to Ford themselves, oddly. It's an interesting situation because in the world of fast food, there are McDonald's franchises, and there's also a smaller number of McDonald's factory-owned stores. And in the car dealer world, there are many states with laws that would in a manner of speaking, prevent McDonald's from ever owning a McDonald's. And that's sort of how it is with car companies owning their own dealers. Right. And there are states where this is not quite set in stone, but car companies tried it in the past and it went really wrong. So they just decided not to do it. So there was a time where I believe it was General Motors. Someone can probably correct us down there in the comment section. It was either General Motors or Ford. There were some dealers that had gone up for sale in the central part of the US, they decided to try and make an experiment of this. And they bought the dealers from the franchisees. They bought them back, tried to run them as their own thing. And the sales didn't go where they wanted them to go. And they gave up the experiment. And I believe they ended up selling all the dealers to Penske is how that unfolded in the end. But I think that combined with the way that franchise laws work in the United States just has car manufacturers not really willing to push the envelope too far. So here's how it goes. You want to buy a McDonald's dealership, basically, or a car dealership or whatever, insert your thing here. Um, you go and you franchise that from the franchisee. And the way these agreements work is that they're all regulated by state, which is why it's so crazy. Every state has their own rules around franchises and franchise offering circulars and how long the waiting periods are and all that kind of drama. These agreements have to be registered with the state and they're all incredibly opaque. We very rarely get to see any of these franchise agreements. 
because there are non-disclosure clauses, there are anti-defamation clauses, there are gag things, all that kind of stuff in these contracts. And that's universal with pretty much all franchise organizations. But generally speaking, they license the name and the right to do business in this particular geographic area. Then they buy the vehicles from the manufacturer and they sell them. And the important thing here is that when you have a bad experience at a Ford dealer or a Volkswagen dealer or insert your brand here, most likely Ford, the, the manufacturer, has nothing to do with that interaction. They, they cannot train the employee. They cannot hire or fire the employees. They have zero control over that kind of stuff. They can provide training materials and they can incentivize the dealers to use the training materials really can't make the dealers do that is the problem. Yeah, and this creates all sorts of problems because, I mean, for example, trying to buy a Tesla in Texas, even though Teslas are now made in Texas, has a big problem because of franchise laws. Ford's recently announced intention to sell cars online at a single price without markup is going to run afoul of franchise laws around the country and has left people profoundly confused. And Volkswagen, which apparently owns the Scout brand, recently announced it's going to launch Scout as a parallel brand structure with its own retail chain that excludes mm -hmm. Volkswagen dealers and principally operates online. So a lot of right. Yikes. I mean, it's we haven't seen all the details of Ford's plan, but it does appear to be substantially similar to what we see at Polestar. So it is possible, theoretically, to sell your vehicle like that online as for Ford as long as there is a dealer involved. So how it will likely operate with Ford, although again, details are sparse, the franchises will have to opt in to a program where they pull the orders from Ford, then actually process them for the customer. Then they're agreeing to sell it for the price. Otherwise, they're not going to get the lead, etc. So that's the way that this would operate inside the Ford envelope. It's basically what Polestar is doing there. There is no legal requirement that Polestar franchise dealers, which they all are, actually sell them for MSRP. But there is a carrot and stick program going on within the franchise agreement to encourage them, to incentivize them to do that, just as there was with Saturn once upon a time in the US. So as long as everybody plays nice and they follow the rules with the franchise agreement, that's all going to be fine with Polestar. But there's nothing to prevent one dealer from going, well, you know, hey, I'm going to give you a special deal and I'll I'll give you the car actually at cost. That can still happen within the Polestar envelope and could theoretically still happen with Ford, for instance. I think the bigger problem Ford has, by the way, I do remember there was back in the 2000s, I think it was Ford back when they had, you know, the premier auto group. They wanted to create aggregated factory owned stores that would include several of their premier brand cars. I think that's what that was. But the problem Ford has now with its dealers, and Chevy has the same problem with Silverados and Corvettes especially, is trying to control the markups and keep them within the, the domain of reason. Um, mm -hmm. and, and also, there have been tactics like forcing people to up their deposit amount. There's yes. been a lot of different things that have ticked people off. And Ford has had very little, and Chevy has had very little control over this other than to say, hey, this might affect your allocations in the future, but stop. Exactly. And that's really all that can be done. You know, Ford cannot tell a dealer, you must sell this car for, for X. That's not possible. Uh, it's not legal in the United States. And there are no real rules around what the dealer can sell the car for. It's up to them to decide. And 
I had a lot of questions about anti-gouging laws. Anti-gouging laws in the United States uh, universally only apply if there has been a national or state declared emergency, which does not really apply to cars. So it's not really a thing. The important thing to remember about these these agreements, these constructs, is that they oftentimes define how dealers get cars. So dealer sells car, dealer gets car from manufacturer. There's nothing the manufacturer can do about that if the dealer's doing something they don't like. They can, however, say you can't get extra cars. So what they'll do is they'll say, you know, this Toyota dealer in this region, they have a particular allocation based on their sales history and their sales volume. They get X number of cars. You sell one, you buy one, et cetera. That deal goes on. But the dealer wants some extra cars and they're like, well, I'd like to have, you know, uh, four or five hybrids on the lot at one time. They can go to the regional connection at the manufacturer and ask for this, it's up to them at their discretion to then allocate additional vehicles to the dealer. If you're a naughty dealer and you're on Santa's bad list, then they won't give you these optional allocations. But if you're not on the bad list, you probably will get them. So that's the, the sort of carrot and stick that they have to try and implore dealers to not do this. There's also public shaming, to be perfectly honest, which we see a lot with Ford. Ford is probably the most aggressive at employing all the tactics that they do have to try and convince the dealers to not do crazy stuff. Yeah, and they have a lot of incentive to do so. If you've wondered where $100,000 Broncos come from, it comes from a failure of this system. So that's exactly what's going on. It might feel like gouging, mm -hmm. but according to the U.S. government, technically, it's not. And it's always in the customer's control. Remember, you don't have to go to that dealership. You could buy your Ford from anywhere. And there are definitely dealers around the United States that will not charge you any markup. Some may even have a tiny discount here and there. And almost universally, these dealers that are willing to sell you a car for no dealer markup, they will do it out of state and they will ship a car for you if you want them to. So if your local dealer, name the brand, is charging five, six, seven thousand dollars of dealer markup, you can order a car from, you know, Wichita, Kansas and have it shipped to you and they'll handle most of the work there for you. And you might end up saving money as a result. And you will certainly thumb it to your local dealer. If this happens enough, that is some encouragement to dealers to just stop the shenanigans. Also, in some cases, not always, maybe not with an F-150 Lightning, maybe not with a C8 Corvette or a Bronco, but Oftentimes, if you do a factory order, you can get pretty close to the retail price of a car if you're willing to wait for delivery. If you go through the whole factory custom order process, you can usually get a lot closer to retail than if you try to find a car on a lot and negotiate. Yeah. And I will say that that a most of the dealers that are on the will not charge additional dealer markup for insert your brand new special car here. Most of them, the asterisk on that is original orderers only. So if I just if I choose not to take the lightning that I ordered and I just let it go, then the dealer will likely have a markup. But theoretically, at the moment, they're promising not to have one for me. Now, I've got a question that was forwarded to me. Uh, this is can an EV have a manual transmission? Yes, but why would you want one? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's difficult to say because on the one hand, it would be a lot easier to create an EV drivetrain since the company no longer has to go through EPA certifying 
a low volume niche powertrain combination. There's no emission involved. You just stick a manual box on the back of a motor and whatever it costs to tool up and market it, that's the cost. On the I other mean, hand... Well, they still would, oddly, they still do need to be emissions tested, which is weird. You still have all the EPA filing stuff to do. But I'm, I'm guessing that would be an easy pass. The chance of yes. failing is low. Okay. Cost is still the same, though, oddly enough. And they have to be they have to be range tested and all of that. They still have to go through the usual uh, test cycles, just like a gasoline vehicle would. So there's very little savings there. Um, Jeep has a, a prototype Wrangler with a with a battery and a motor and a manual transmission. It's never going to get sold, though, let's be honest. I mean, that's probably the case. The best way to get an EV with a manual transmission, and I'm not making this up, is go to a company like EV West that's doing conversions of old Porsches and Volkswagens and have them yep. stick a motor, a battery, power controllers, and inverters into the car, and that is your manual transmission EV. Now, I would like to think someday, again, maybe you don't need to do certainly the road test development to check the emissions on your EV drivetrain. I would hope that there'd be some sort of enthusiast loophole to get something like this built down the road. But the bottom line is transmissions generally with EVs just aren't necessary. You have basically exactly. a and a wheel and it transmits. And when you can rev to 15, 20,000 RPM, one speed's all you need, unless you're yep. Porsche. Yep, exactly. That's the big thing is, unless you're doing a conversion where the manual transmission would certainly be easier, but most people would probably just leave it in second gear. There's just no point to having the clutch or the extra gears anymore. It's just added weight. On the conversion side, uh, there's definitely no need for any sort of emissions testing, et cetera. Once you've converted it, there's nothing. Yeah, I mean, it's one interesting thing I would say is maybe it gives you an opportunity to use smaller motors that you know could better utilize the leverage created by a gearbox. That's true. Uh, I mean, that could be fun. It would be a weird experience. Remember this, guys. You could theoretically start off your manual transmission EV from zero RPM in top gear, and it would gradually gain speed. There is nothing you could do to stall your car. Yep. So it would be a very different experience from, say, driving any gas-powered manual transmission car. Exactly. The only reason the transmission exists in the construct that we know of it in regular cars is because gasoline and diesel engines don't do anything at zero or one RPM. <laughs> yeah, I, so I mean, you, you have to transmit the power somehow. The fun might come from maybe being involved or, you know, match rev downshifts would still be a thing just to match motor speed to road speed. Um, but I, I think, you know, you'll see higher end conversions than Volkswagens and Porsches down the road. I wouldn't be shocked if someday Mazda, which actually supplies parts and service to older Miatas under, on a limited basis, wouldn't be shocked if down the road Mazda Speed decides to do like an EV conversion of like the NA Miata. The NA and the NB are basically mm -hmm. the same car. Um, but it's a very low probability. It could be some niche right. thing. Like Porsche does an electric GT3 in 15 years, and they decide, well, we're going to make a couple of the manuals for the fans. They're going to cost yeah. a ridiculous amount of money. The other two things to keep in mind would be that it would add complexity, cost, and a point of failure to have a manual. And the second thing would be it would end up making your EV likely need to be less powerful because if you're going to put the kind of torque through there that an electric motor can 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 create, then you probably would end up in situations where you would be damaging, destroying, or really prematurely aging your clutch. Uh, clutch slip at zero RPM, that's a definite thing. When you have that much torque that fast, 
it's something that we really see in a lot of modern EVs right now. For instance, this week we have the Genesis GV60 in. This is the model with the performance option. So it's uh, 450 some odd horsepower in boost mode. And boost mode is hilarious because what it's doing is it gives you access to all of the just over 200 horsepower on the rear axle almost immediately. So the rear wheels chirp on a strong launch. And then at around mm, third, 25, 30 miles an hour, the front wheels chirp because it it's at this speed where Genesis has decided, okay, now it's safe to let the front motor have all the power that it can consume. And so when that front motor comes fully online, there's just so much torque that even at 30 miles an hour, it spins the front tires again. Yeah, it would be a serious problem because the limitation on a gearbox generally is never horsepower, it's input shaft torque. Mm -hmm. And that's almost always the limiting factor. If you could prevent the input shaft from like shearing, then you run up into problems like, you know, how are you going to use helical cut road gears in there? You're going to need to use straight cut gears like a racing gearbox. <laughs> that's going to sound like a barrel of monkeys. There are a lot of problems, but hey, it's a beautiful dream. Mm -hmm. Yep. And that's part of why a lot of those electric prototypes sound really crazy is because of those straight cut gears. If you've ever wondered why your car is noisier in reverse, that's the reason. Alex, do we have any other questions from the field? I think that is it. So everybody should just make sure and stay tuned because, of course, we will have the videos on the GV60 and the Rivian videos coming up soon. Charging tests, range tests, towing tests with the Rivian, and uh, hopefully sometime thereafter a Rivian meets lightning video whenever our lightning shows up. It's somewhere between Michigan and California. And... At some point thereafter, we have to make a decision. Are we going to keep one of them? And if so, which one are we going to keep? Ooh, that sounds like a viewer poll. I don't know if I want to leave it to the viewers. <laughs> <laughs> maybe what? maybe we'll have a poll and then we'll have a poll to see if we follow the viewer's suggestion. Like that Larry David commercial. What? The people will vote? Even the stupid ones? <laughs> It's okay. uh yeah I'm torn because this vehicle theoretically is the one that we're going to keep longer term and it would be the one that would be used for pickups and deliveries for the materials engineering side of this crazy conglomerate that Alex Nautos is part of and for that side of the business something like a plug-in hybrid minivan would actually be the rational thing to do but nobody wants to see a review on a minivan people would rather see a video of their parents doing it than a video on minivans let's be honest so probably for viewer reasons we should keep an ev truck and with that image in your head thanks so much i'm tim he's alex alex where do they find us offline and on all the alex and autos places auto buyers guide uh, ev buyers guide etc just do your googling and go to alexandautos.com.